0: Welcome to Green Conversations with me, Jeanette Fitzsimons. These episodes were recorded at the Young Greens Annual Conference held in February 2019 on our farm, Paparaka. We're sitting under the pecan nut trees down by the river with background sound effects from the tuis and the cicadas. There are more episodes on their way. History suggests that when a party changes its name, it takes two years for the public take it on board, to understand what's going on. For two years after we joined the Alliance, people were still saying in opinion polls, oh, I would vote Green, even though there was at that stage going to be no Green to vote for. We had just two years until the 1999 election. So we knew we had to re-establish our identity quite quickly and that was hampered by Rod and me still being Alliance. But we were adamant that we wouldn't renounce the label that we were elected on. The polls were not encouraging. People had finally realised the Greens were in the Alliance and they were not about to change again in a hurry. I clearly remember a meeting at Joel Kayford's house. He was co-convenor of the Greens at that time, where a knock on the door ushered in a planned delegation of Auckland Greens who'd come to lobby us. Jeanette and Rod, you are damaging the party. You must declare yourselves Green MPs now to the Speaker and renounce all alliance ties. You must use the word Green on all press releases and let ahead and when you're speaking. That is the only way the public will understand that they have to vote Green at the election but Rod and I both had a streak of stubborn. We were elected as Alliance MPs. If we lose our integrity, what have we got left? It was about us personally, rather than a party decision. We had been elected as Alliance MPs and we weren't reneging on that. The delegation left grumpily. Of course we used the green, word green wherever we could in our public announcements, And it was up to the party to build our election campaign under a green label. We looked forward very much to coming out just seven weeks before the election when the House was due to rise. I think it was May 1999 when Rod put out a very cheeky statement rejoicing that the Greens had achieved single figures in the polls. We were now on 1%. By the time of our campaign launch, five weeks Before the election, we were on 3.6%. It was pretty clear that the only way we could get back into Parliament was on the one-seat rule, that if we could win a seat, then we would get whatever proportion of the vote we had won, and that was likely to mean five or six MPs rather than none. The only realistic opportunity for doing that was Coromandel, and so we focused on that. Greens from around the country descended on Pakaraka Farm. It was a wonderful time. We had people from the South Island coming up just to work for the Coromandel campaign. We de-emphasised the party vote when people said, well, I'm a Labour supporter, but I'd like you to win the electorate. I would say to them, well, it's fine to vote Labour with your party vote. And give me your candidate vote. That is exactly the opposite of what we've done every election since then but it was what we needed at that time. GE was a huge public issue and I launched a petition for a moratorium on GE release and a royal commission on the GE technologies before any further decisions were made. I door knocked that and all of our supporters door knocked it as well, it was in my name and it was received really, really well. It was a great way of talking to people about their concerns with something that so many people were concerned about. We also campaigned against the National Party proposal to turn the Thames Hospital into a day, a day centre, a day clinic, that didn't do surgery any longer. And that was hugely popular. Because although Thames is only an hour and a half from Hamilton, the northern tip of the Coromandel was far too far away and often there was weather where the helicopter couldn't land in emergency situations. People were tired of nine years of the national government. It was time for a change. And little stickers designed by Ron Resnick and and Nelson um, showed a ship sinking with the caption, Abandon Shipley. Our local leaflet pointed out that 66% of the Coromandel electorate hadn't wanted a national MP at the previous election, but that was what they got. Why? Because the 66% split their vote among five different parties. pointed out that there was only one realistic alternative to the national candidate, and the previous election vote showed that. So it was between me and Murray McLean. I think that was pretty successful. That that leaflet, and we delivered it all over the all over the electorate. We also decided to take a poll. How would you vote if the election were just between McLean and Fitzsimons? I have to say, Murray McLean was almost invisible. They used to call him Murray Who, and the national government was pretty unpopular. So, if the election was between McLean and Fitzsimons, who would you vote for? Well, we, got, we hired a reputable polling company to do that for us. When the results came in, we looked at them and we said, we can't release this, it's much too dangerous. It showed me so far ahead that the green supporters would have down and got complacent and said, oh, we've got it in the bag, which we certainly didn't have. A little bit later, we took another poll, which came up with results neck and neck, which was just what we wanted, so we released that. The media were staggered. They didn't believe it, of course. Oh, this is a rigged poll. So the media all got in and did their own polls and got the same result, or even got me ahead. And so great excitement. The media focused on Coromandel. This was the story of the 99 campaign. Helen Clark visited the electorate, as she did most electorates. The Labour electorate committee and many of their supporters had already decided to vote for me with the electorate vote while voting Labour with the party vote. And um, so when Helen was here, they said, well, what do you think Labour voters should do in this electorate? And Helen said, well, Labour voters can read the polls and make up their own minds. That was all she ever said And yet that has been described in the political science literature many times as Helen Clark gave the Coromandel election to the Greens. That got under my skin when I think of the hard work that had gone into it for two or three years, actually, and all the people who came and campaigned. So I want to correct that, right? (laughs) Actually, a number of people had suggested a long time before that that I approach Helen about an electoral accommodation in Coromandel. And I refused to do that. I did not want to be in Parliament thanks to the good offices of Helen Clark. I did not want to be dependent on her goodwill. I said, we can win this on our own. And we did. A week before the election, we were running comfortably ahead in the polls when a supporter rang me on a Sunday night and said, I've just been in to pick up my countermail at the at the post office and there's a whole pile of postcards there that are going to be delivered to all households tomorrow. They showed a big cannabis plant, a photo of me and Sue Bradford and Nandor. They said a vote for Fitzsimons is a vote for Sue Bradford who's never had a job in her life. Completely untrue. It was pretty extreme stuff. And the tiny print at the bottom which had to be there saying authorised by, and I looked up the address and it was the Hamilton branch of the National Party. So I rang TV immediately that night and said, hey, you want to have a look at this? This is what's going to be delivered all over Coromandel tomorrow. So before anyone had got it in their letterbox, the TV news on the Sunday night was about the National Party's dirty tricks campaign in Coromandel, and we called it the dirty postcard. On election night, I was so green that I went down to our party gathering in Thames at half past seven to be with the rest of the troops. No party leader ever does that. They stay at home and they watch it on TV until they know whether they've won and which way the election's going and all the rest of it. Then they have their their sound bites prepared and then they swan in on their party gathering at 10 o'clock at night or later. You see, nobody ever taught me this stuff. So I went down there at Hapa 7 and um, the media seized on me because there was no other party leader available at that time of night. Both of them had power packs on my belt and mics and they would take it in turns to line me up in front of a camera and say, we're going live now. And then you'd stand there for 20 minutes. And they weren't going live at all. They just wanted to get in before the opposition. And I found myself saying things like, how many different ways are there to say there is still no news? (laughs) It was a very tense evening. I didn't dare drink the sparkling Fijoa wine that everybody else was celebrating with. Um, I drank cups of tea and orange juice until two o'clock in the morning when I the media all left and I allowed myself the first glass of wine. What you do in the cause of the Green Party, eh? It was a dismal night, despite the green hair that many of my supporters had decided to wear for the occasion. We needed either a win in the Coromandel electorate or 5% of the national vote. When results stopped coming in at 2 or 3 in the morning. I had lost the Coromandel electorate by 140 votes and the Greens were on 4.9%. The next 10 days we had to wait for the special votes. It was a really surreal time. We couldn't get on with the next stage of our lives because we didn't know what it was going to be. I guess the answer is what I chose to do. You catch up on sleep, which you're really, really behind on. You catch up with the spring garden which has been terribly neglected and you write all your thank you letters to all your supporters so that kept me going for for 10 days but during that time in no man's land there was one person who was the most amazing supporter phoned me on election night sent flowers on election night phoned me every couple of days through the 10-day period saying Don't worry, you're going to make it. The ferals will have come down out of the bush and they'll put you in on the special votes. (laughs) And this was Bob Brown, the leader of the Australian Greens, who I count as a very good friend, even though we've never spent a lot of time together. He's an amazing politician. He recently put out a book of his memoirs and short stories. It was all about being positive. If you can get hold of it, it's a great read. And he was right. The ferals or whoever else had come down from the hills. (laughs) On um, the final day, Harry was scrutineering in Thames and I was preparing to go to Wellington. If we'd lost, I had only a week to clean out my office, which was going to be a massive job. If we'd won, I needed to get the Green Team together because the government had been formed. The Labour Alliance um, Coalition had been formed um, they hadn't been, had ministers sworn in because you can't till after the special votes are counted but they knew what they were going to do um, and they were all organised and we weren't. So anyway, when I left Thames to go to the airport 20% of the votes had been counted and they were running in my favour and I said, oh, you know, that doesn't mean anything not a representative sample and more kept coming in as I drove out across the plains got to 60%. You're actually now ahead on the total. Oh, this could happen. 80% counted, you're now clearly ahead. I thought, gee, I better let people know. I said, Rod, are you sitting down? Yes, he said, on my bicycle. (laughs) And I said, well, get off and stand on the footpath. (laughs) Now go home and pack and come to Parliament because we're in. So he couldn't believe it. I said, look, can we divide up the other new MPs between us and make sure they all get called in the next half hour or so? So Sue Bradford, Sue Kedgley, Nando um, Ian Ewan Street. And there was a possibility of Keith at number seven. If I got in, it was going to give us six MPs. If the Greens got over 5%, it was going to give us seven So we gathered in Wellington, we had a photo taken on the steps of Parliament, we all went out to dinner together, all the people coming past said, hey you guys, you made it, isn't it great? It was a time of huge excitement. We brought Keith down, he joined us for dinner, but he's sitting there with his phone over dinner, uh, tracking the party vote, which wasn't in yet, were we going to be over 5%. That didn't come through until about three o'clock in the morning and um, we finally knew that um, he had got in. The Greens had got 5.1% and had seven MPs. Neither of us felt like any wine at that stage, so we went off home. (laughs) So that was the Greens' entry into Parliament. I mean, the next week was absolutely crazy. We had no offices, we had no telephones, the new five new MPs who didn't even know where the toilets were yet, and the government's about to start up and running, and we had a lot of catch up to do. And we had caucus meetings to try and figure out how we were going to unite these seven MPs who didn't know each other very well, who were all sort of experts in their field, but didn't have a history of working as a team. Um, how we're going to meld them into a caucus with a common view, what sort, of, what sort of rules we were going to have. And so we had caucus meetings every morning and they didn't last very long because there'd be a knock on the door, oh, so-and-so's just arrived with a bottle of bubbly and some flowers. <laughs> oh, The media have arrived and they want to film your caucus. I even remember Rod, who was a media junkie, a media fanatic, I remember him at one of these stages saying, oh, I'm sick of the media. I thought I should have recorded that for posterity because it was such an unusual statement coming from Rod. Anyway, um, that was how it all started. My thanks to Hans Booter, who recorded this podcast, and to Finn Kennedy, who edited it.